Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. This is the final Ripper interview for now. Listener discretion, again, is advised. I am very excited to have Sarah Bax Horton with me today. She is a true crime writer, researcher, and analyst who previously served as a civil servant in the United Kingdom's Foreign Office. And she is here today to discuss her new book, one-Armed Jack, Uncovering Jack the Ripper. Thank you for coming on. So great to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Eric. Yes. So you have a, a fascinating personal connection to the Whitechapel murders. Would you tell us what that is? In early 2017, I made the chance discovery through family history research that my great-great-grandfather, Harry Garrett, worked on the Jack the Ripper case. And in extraordinary timing, he was transferred into Whitechapel on promotion to sergeant in January 1888. And the killings began in August of that year. And when I made that discovery, I was just so thrilled. I was actually a police volunteer for many years without knowing that I'd had a police ancestor. And I went straight to the Metropolitan Police Archives and Museum to find out more about his career and ultimately a lot more about the Jack the Ripper case. Yeah, you were able to, to find some really interesting information about him including this heroic rescue he was a part of in October of 1888, uh, right in the midst of the Autumn of Terror. What's fascinating about what happened in October 1888 was that Harry, my ancestor, was working a night shift at Lemon Street Police Station. And as you say, it was 
in the middle of the Ripper series of murders. And so we can categorically place him to the headquarters of the Ripper investigation at that time. And what happened was that he was called out because a building opposite the station was on fire. And he and a couple of colleagues helped to rescue 11 members of the same family and their servant uh, from that smoke-filled building. And they actually charged up the stairs and led the family down. And in one case, they carried a very elderly woman down the stairs to safety. And they put their own lives at considerable risk. And I was just so humbled that he'd performed that act of heroism and saved the family who have notable descendants, which include the late Dr. Oliver Sacks and Robert Auman, who was uh, who still alive, a Nobel Prize winner, and so on. And so that was just immensely satisfying to me because actually there were very few surviving papers about Harry's career and his life and I spent many months piecing together uh, what I could find out about him and his family. That's great, yeah. It's very probable, right, that he was right in the thick of the action, the the investigation, uh, knocking on doors, gathering information, I think we can almost definitely say so because the Whitechapel police were so overwhelmed by having a serial killer at loose in their district that they were regularly being given reinforcements of up to 100 men from the neighbouring divisions. So all of the men in Whitechapel would have been involved in the case in some way, whether, as you say, directly through door-to-door inquiries. Um, Men were regularly arrested and taken to the cells at all of the Whitechapel uh, police stations because there were so many suspects at the time and there were also denunciations and letters being written in. And so all of the police would have been occupied at some point uh, in those years. Yeah, I'm sure. So in a recent interview with another guest, we talked some about how certain police officials later in their lives, Robert Anderson, uh, Donald Swanson, believed that they had known the the identity of Jack the Ripper. The name Kosminski was later connected to this suspect, but you believe that they may have been referring to someone else, a man named Hyam Hyams. Could you tell us about Hyams and why you think it might have been him and not Kosminski on the minds of London police? When I developed a real interest in the Jack the Ripper case, I decided, owing to the huge volume of information, to really focus on what the police of the day said about the criminal. And what we have from Robert Anderson is someone who was an East Ender living in the immediate vicinity of the murder locations, low class, meaning living on the poverty line. And Anderson said 
there was no doubt whatever as to the identity of the criminal, but that a key eyewitness refused to testify against him in court. And what Anderson said in addition about the perpetrator was that he started to kill when the mania or paroxysms, meaning fits, seized him. And when I started to look for candidates who might fit the Anderson profile, and I discovered Hyam Hyams, those medical records on Hyams were only released to the public in 2013 and 2015, so a hundred years after Hyams' death in 1913. And this is why previous researchers and commentators, although Hyams has been a subject of interest for some time, decades, they didn't have access to those files. And when I read those files, the concept of epileptic mania and severe epileptic fits, which I directly relate back to what Anderson mentioned, these are conditions which Hyam suffered from. And in fact, he was violent after his fits. And this was noted in the secure medical facilities where he was held. And he was violent and dangerous for periods of days at a time. And this may explain the periodicity between the murders. Um, Anderson also said that the killer ended his series of murders when admitted into in the parlance of the day, a lunatic asylum. And what Donald Swanson, who was the lead detective on the case, said, he said that the suspect, when identified, was watched by the City of London Police CID by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, was sent to Stepney Workhouse and then to Colney Hatch. Anderson's wife once remarked that the Ripper was interned at Stone, which was another asylum near Dartford in Kent. And in fact, it's over 30 miles away from Colney Hatch, which is in North London. And so we have three locations where the Ripper was held. And in fact, Hyams was held at all of those three locations, and died at Colney Hatch. So yeah, the, the details given about the suspect by these police officials, they, they match up, as you just mentioned, pretty interestingly with Hyam Hyams. But it's hard to look past the fact that Kosminski was actually named, right? What do you make of that? It's difficult to fully analyze that. We don't really know the provenance of these jottings. We don't know who Kosminski was. Aaron Kosminski has been matched as possibly being this Kosminski, but we don't know who it was. And certainly, as I'd like to go on to say, I have physical characteristics that link my suspect to the eyewitness accounts of the day and indeed to what Anderson 
and Swanson said, and nobody else has an evidence-led proposition because Hyams had these very distinctive physical characteristics. We know this from the medical files. So in February 1888, he broke his left elbow and was unable to work in 1888, leaving him at liberty, in pain, possibly unable to sleep. And he was left with a stiff left arm, which he was unable to fully bend or extend. And he also had a very peculiar gait, whereby he walked with bent knees, and he presented with asymmetric foot dragging. And again, this was linked to eyewitness um, accounts. And he was weighed, measured, described and photographed in the medical facilities where he was held. And he matches eyewitness accounts. So he was aged 35 in 1888 with dark brown hair. He was five foot seven and a half inches tall. He weighed 10 stone seven pounds or nearly 67 kilos, which was towards uh, the top end of the modern BMI. He was noticeably broad-shouldered. He talked with a slight hesitancy of speech and he had these uh, epileptic seizures whereby he was described as dangerous, treacherous, tearing his sheets, painting the walls with excrement, committing attacks on his wife who visited him, on medical staff and fellow inmates. And there was one attack with a sharpened piece of metal to the neck of a a medical officer. He was an alcoholic who suffered from delirium tremens or severe alcohol withdrawal symptoms, which could cause hallucinations. And he was suspected to have syphilis. His wife also reported that he suffered from paranoia. He believed his food was poisoned and he periodically refused to eat. Um, that his wife and a doctor somehow caused his epilepsy, which came on in adulthood. And he had a terror of the police whom he believed were following him. And I note this with some irony against the fact that the City of London police claimed to have followed their suspect as Jack the Ripper for a three-month period. His wife was terrified of him, right? Yes, I mean, he committed two violent attacks against his wife when he was at liberty. She claimed to live in fear of his violence. Yeah. Is there much known about his childhood, his family? I researched Hyam's early life and through my family history research, it is... um, possible through these sites to find out, um, you know, a lot about, you know, births, marriages, deaths, and the uh, periodical census records, which let us know also where the family were living um, at those times. 
And basically, Hyams was born in the same year as my police ancestor, 1853. And he was born in the Aldgate area of London. So really just off uh, Whitechapel Road. And his family were fruiterers and probably sold oranges and lemons. But his father died when he was a child, which must have been not only a traumatic event, but it would have affected his family's financial situation. And in fact, uh, Hyam's mother, Rebecca, took on the responsibility for continuing the family business and Hyams as the oldest son also went into it young and he would have taken on some of the responsibility for keeping the family going. So there was an extended family who were cigar makers and this in my analysis is why Hyams himself went on to work as a cigar maker until he had his left elbow injury, which would have affected his manual dexterity when working with a knife. And he then seems to have gone on to be what was called a general dealer, which would have been some form of shopkeeper. And whether he was selling cigars and cigarettes or um, other products, we don't actually know from the records. Uh, he married and he had two young children at the time when the Whitechapel murders commenced in August 1888. And he would have spoken colloquial English as well, right? Exactly, yes. He was born and raised in the East End of London and the the ripper who was heard conversing with his victims was known to speak colloquial English and he had some slight hesitancy or mildness of speech, which was also reported about Hyams himself. Wow. So his arm was broken in February 1888. Would it be hard for someone uh, with, with one functional arm to commit these murders that were taking place that summer, that fall? His arm injury would have healed by the August of 1888 when the murders commenced. He was unable to fully bend and extend it, so it would have been stiff and possibly uncomfortable. And I believe this explains what I call the blitz-style attack that characterises the Jack the Ripper murders. So he attacked the women very quickly to avoid their defensive reactions. And what he did was a partial strangulation, which we know from the bruising that they had around their faces and necks. And then he quickly uh, cut their throats. And so they were not heard to, to have 
cried out, and so on, apart from Annie Chapman, who was heard by somebody in a neighbouring yard because she was killed in the backyard of a house on Hanbury Street. And somebody did hear her cry out, no, but he thought little of it and did not um, investigate what was going on in the neighbouring yard. And that is my analysis of why he killed the women quickly and then was able to mutilate uh, their dead bodies afterwards. So where in Whitechapel did he live? And in what proximity to the crime scenes? So Hyams lived on Wentworth Court, which was directly off Wentworth Street. And it really is in the epicentre of the Ripper murders. So this is why, in addition to the canonical five murders, which are generally believed to have been committed by the Ripper, I do add Martha Tabram as a precursor. Now, Martha Tabram was killed overnight on the 7th of August, 1888, and the first of the canonical five murders, that of Polly Nichols, was on the 31st of August. And Martha's murder took place within two minutes' walk of Wentworth Court. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that she was the first of the series, because serial killers uh, traditionally kill in a place extremely near to their own home where they feel comfortable. And also what we can say about Martha Tabram's murder is that it could have an immature modus operandi with uh, multiple stab wounds as a precursor to what became abdominal mutilations. We will be back after these brief messages. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts. 
Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. And we have returned. There's another connection, right, to Jubilee Street. So one of Hyam's addresses was Jubilee Street, which was in what was called Mile End Old Town, which is further to the east uh, than the locations that we've currently been describing, but still within walking distance. And... We don't know the exact date of Hyam's removal there, so I can't really comment any further on his uh, the exact date of, of all of his addresses. A woman named Emily Marsh received a visitor at her address at 218 Jubilee Street. That, that visit, would it have had anything to do with Hyam Hyams? What the possible connection is, is that Hyams might have been living almost directly opposite to the location of that shop at the time when quite a suspicious character went into the shop and they were trying to ascertain the address of George Lusk, who was the chairman of a vigilance committee, what we might call vigilantes, who were patrolling the streets to try to stop the Ripper. This is a subject of analysis in my book. However, I don't feel, apart from the location, the description of the man involved does not relate well to Hyams. So I mention it as a point of interest rather than as part of my case against my prime suspect. Right, right. So there's always a debate when when looking at different Jack the Ripper suspects about the killer's skill with a knife, what, what their experience might have been, you know, carving up meat, performing surgeries. Where does Hyam Hyams fit into that conversation? In my view, having analysed this closely, the police were continually asking the police surgeons who served them and who carried out the post-mortem examinations on the women's bodies what level of knife skill was used. So what is what are the medical or butchery skills of the killer? 
And on the whole, it was thought that the skills were comparatively low level and that in fact the direction of some of the cuts, the abdominal cuts that were made, was in exactly the opposite direction to what a medical man would have performed. However, I must caveat what I'm saying with the observation that to remove a kidney from Catherine Eddowes, who was the fourth victim of the canonical five, to me that does imply some anatomical awareness because the kidney is actually towards the rear of the body when approaching from the front. And so I do find this a question of genuine interest. Hyams, as a cigar maker, would have been dexterous with a knife. And the two concepts that I put forward in my book are firstly, that there would have been a far greater knowledge of domestic butchery among everyday people at the time, because they would have needed to have performed some form of um, butchery, whether major or minor, in order to eat. And my other theory is that there was a visiting waxwork show which claimed to be of medical value to medical students and gentlemen, but was clearly aimed at titillation, whereby there were these almost um, life-size prone wax figures of women whereby their internal organs could be removed and put back together as in a jigsaw. And so that would have been a way of, again, assimilating anatomical knowledge without uh, studying or working in that field. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, you, you write that in November of 1888, Robert Anderson commissioned senior police surgeon and forensic expert Thomas Bond to produce a profile of the killer. And one of the things he concluded was that all five murders were committed by the same hand. In the first four, the throats appeared to have been slashed from left to right, so the victim must have been attacked from the right side. What, what's your feeling on this as far as Haim Haims goes? Yes, I don't see any reason why he couldn't have performed those attacks with uh, one uh, stiff arm. The women would not have been expecting to be attacked, even as the case gathered in profile and was widely reported in the newspapers. They were either fearless, or they thought it wouldn't happen to them, or for whatever reason they thought they were able to make good judgments about the men that they were consorting with. So he did have very strongly the element of surprise on his side. And as I said, he did partially strangle them before cutting their throats. And I do feel that with uh, that his arm injury was not such as would have precluded him from carrying out those uh, attacks, although he may have been in pain uh, to some extent or discomfort. Um, but I'm not kind of uh, suggesting that his arm 
could not be used. And certainly that isn't uh, what is written in the medical files. It just says he couldn't fully bend or extend it, which is a typical kind of shortening of the range of motion, which you might expect from that sort of injury. And the police surgeons did believe that the ripper was right-handed. And although we don't know this, to be the ripper, I think it's probably fair to say that Hyams would have needed to be right-handed. Right. So I'd like to ask you about the eyewitnesses you write about in your book, including a man named Joseph Hyam Levy. Would you talk about what they saw and a possible connection to Hyam Hyams? So the murder of Catherine Eddowes, which was the second in what we call uh, the double event, which is when two women were killed within 45 minutes of each other. And what we believe is that the killer being disturbed in the murder of Elizabeth Stride and unable to gain gratification from mutilating her dead body, went on to kill Catherine Eddowes. For the Eddowes murder, we have three important eyewitnesses. They were three men who were together because they just left a club where they'd been having a convivial evening and they walked past Catherine Eddowes being solicited by a man and in conversation with him while they were just exiting the club and walking along uh, the road on their way home. And there was a kind of consistent view from the men that obviously they didn't realise that they were witnessing the minutes before a murder. They thought the man looked a bit rough and clearly Catherine Eddowes was destitute so she would also have been looking rather down on her luck and they would have feared crime you know being possibly being robbed or something so that they moved on quite quickly but they did see um, Eddowes with a man and one of those men was Joseph Lavender, who's believed to be the key witness who refused to testify against the Ripper, despite firmly identifying him. And we may perhaps explain that by the fact that the death penalty was in operation in Victorian England at that time. The other two witnesses, as you say, were Joseph Hyam Levy and another man called Harry Harris. And um, the last two did have some uh, possible connection to Hyams. Harry Harris, his wife, um, was a near neighbour of the family of Hyam's wife for at least 10 years in the Aldgate area. And in terms of Joseph Hyam Levy, Hyam's cousin lived extremely near Levy's wife's family. And that was a connection of several decades duration. So the other two, those two, would have, could potentially 
have known Hyams. Lavender did not know him. He was a more recent immigrant. And it's quite clear from what Anderson writes about the key eyewitness who refused to testify, that that person didn't know the man whom he identified as the Ripper, but he identified him by sight in an identity parade. I'd like to talk about the wit- the the other eyewitnesses, if I may. Yes, please. Um, so, on the subject of eyewitnesses, I was surprised when I started researching the case on how many there were. So, these are people who either saw the Ripper accosting his victims, often minutes before their murders or they saw someone running away from the scene of the crime. And a couple of these witness accounts, which were sometimes reported in the inquest accounts and in the newspapers, provided me with my eureka moment whereby I believed it might be possible to solve the case. So after the murder of Annie Chapman, we have a sighting of a man with a stiff arm, which appears to be a wooden arm. And this man matches the description of Chaim Hyams. And as you might imagine, my interest was instantly piqued by the mention of the arm. I then discovered that this witness, Thomas Ede, did actually identify the man with the seeming wooden arm as what was described as the well-known harmless lunatic John James. And I can't discount that. That was an identification that was made at the time. But it was my eureka moment because I started to look at the other distinctive physical characteristics of Hyams, of which there are several, and not enough time to describe in full in this interview. However, he did have this peculiar gait and a man called John Thimbleby immediately after the murder of Annie Chapman said that at about six o'clock that morning a man attracted his particular attention before he heard of the murder and the man was hurrying from Hanbury Street, the scene of the crime, below where the murder took place into Brick Lane He was walking, almost running, and had a peculiar gait, his knees not bending when he walked. Now, this was my second moment of discovery, whereby I thought, that's Chaim Hyams, because he has the gait, the description matches, and moreover, nobody else has ever matched physical characteristics from eyewitness accounts to a suspect. And I have a a later witness after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, a man called George Hutchinson came forward who knew her well. And he said that he'd seen her be accosted by a man about two o'clock in the morning on the night of her murder. And he described the man and he also described his walk and 
In the book, I discuss this in some detail, but the newspaper accounts vary as to whether the walk was sharp, meaning fast, or soft. And I thought particularly soft might apply well to this asymmetric foot dragging uh, and, and a slight shuffling gait, which is what we know about Hyam Hyams. Ah, that, that's fascinating. In 2006, you write, there was an electronic facial identification technique made, an EFIT, that took into account the statements of all the people who said they had seen Jack the Ripper and created an image of, of him. Can you describe this headshot and how it compares to the, to the photograph of Hyam Hyams? Yes. So the EFIT is clearly constructed on the basis that the Ripper must have been someone highly capable, intelligent, perhaps cunning, the type of man who's often associated as being Jack the Ripper, who's able to kill between the police beats and time them and get away unseen and unheard and so on. And this is not my analysis. So the EFIT shows a man who really looks physically strong, mentally capable, uh, well-groomed, forceful. I'd say a forceful character. And there were, there were few facial descriptions of the Ripper uh, there were comments about his facial hair and the hair on his head and his expression, actually. He was described as surly and Hyams was also described as surly, but I did feel that something like an expression is quite difficult to possibly declare as evidence. Um, but in my analysis, the man who was Jack the Ripper was not highly physically and mentally capable. He was physically strong enough to carry out the murders. And in fact, you know, the Ripper was described as being stout and broad-shouldered and so on, as was Hyams. But, you know, the man that I've identified as my prime suspect was very unwell and... I don't believe that his actions were calculated. In fact, I believe he was quite a disorganized killer and, in my analysis, may have had many interventions with women without turning violent. And he, his attacks of violence were very periodic in their nature, presumably post-fit when he was um, noted as being very dangerous and violent. And that's why he spent the rest of his life in Colney Hatch, which was one of the most secure medical facilities uh, in the UK at that time. And, and he was arrested in, in what, December of, of 1888? After Christmas in 1888. And so this is less than two months after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, he was arrested um, because he was suffering from 
delirium tremens because he had alcohol withdrawal syndrome and he was acting suspiciously on Lemon Street which I note with irony because that's the street where the police headquarters for the investigation were and he went to Stepney Workhouse Infirmary and he was released when cured of those particular symptoms. So that detention was not related to any criminal act apart from being apparently destitute and behaving strangely and being found to be in need of medical care. And he was then at liberty for three months And this is the period of time when the City of London police claimed that they had the man who was Jack the Ripper under surveillance. And what we know is that a senior detective, Robert Sagar, said that the Ripper was chased from Mitre Square. So that's the scene of Catherine Eddowes' murder immediately after her murder, a police officer fell over her body, blew his whistle, and other officers running up, they set off in pursuit of the man who had just left. The officers were wearing India rubber boots, and the retreating footsteps of a man could be clearly heard. The sounds were followed to King's Block in the model dwellings in Stony Lane, but we did not see the man again that night. And I observe that Hyam's brother Mark lived in North Block on Stony Lane. And so this would conceivably be a useful place for him to hide out if pursued from the scene by the City of London police. And Sagar's colleague, Harry Cox, talked about this three-month surveillance operation, described seeing the man actually accost a woman, and as you might imagine, Cox was deliberating what action to take at that point. However, the Ripper left the woman and actually returned home. And when we talk about Hyam Hyams and his terror of the police, whom he believed were following him... There was a time gap of three months between January and April 1889 when Hyams was at liberty and in my analysis that could match the period of time described by Cox. So in April 1889 Hyams attacked his wife and he was sent to Colney Hatch in a straitjacket which might link back to Swanson saying that the man with his hands tied behind his back was taken to the asylum. Very oddly and inexplicably, Hyams was released in August 1889 for one week. He stabbed his wife. It cannot have been seriously because she continued to visit him during his period of detention. And that's when he was sent to Stone Asylum, which I mentioned as being name-checked by Swanson as a location where the Ripper had been held. And from then on, he was continually in 
secure medical facilities, he was transferred back to Colney Hatch, where he remained for the next 23 years of his life. And he developed dementia and died on the 22nd of March 1913 from what was described as exhaustion from epilepsy and cardiovascular degeneration. Would he have been there with Aaron Kosminski? I believe there was an overlap, but Kosminski was assessed to be not dangerous and was transferred out to Leavesden. And the fact that Hyams was retained at Colney Hatch for such a long period of time, it was one of the most secure medical facilities in the country, and the patients there were considered to be dangerous. I find that a very interesting comparison. Right. So if they were watching Hyam Hyams, if authorities were convinced he was one of their top suspects, if not the actual killer, and Hyam Hyams is the man Anderson, McNaught, and Swanson were referring to, why would they release him for a week? Was there some kind of an error, do you think? If this was the man terrorizing East London for months, why would they let him go? I can't explain it, and it's very strange uh, that it is at that particular time. I simply can't explain it. There are other police memoir writings which claim that it took longer to find information about the Ripper, so they also say that the case was solved, but that it was of a longer duration to actually formulate a case or formulate an idea that uh, this man was Jack the Ripper. What do you think Hyam's motive would have been for, for committing these murders? He had a violent antipathy towards his wife, and I'm using that as a direct quote from his medical records. So he seemed to believe that his wife was unfaithful to him, including with his own brothers. She declared that she'd had four miscarriages and that she lived in fear of her husband's violence. However, those two concepts were not explicitly linked. So I just mention it uh, in the manner that it's written down in the file. And the, the, the motivation for Jack the Ripper was believed by the police of the day to be misogyny and a hatred of prostitutes. So I think we can see quite a clear linkage, perhaps, between Hyam's feelings towards his wife and being an alcoholic and so on. And he also did apparently have some form of venereal disease that it is possible that he viewed the women he killed as proxies for his wife and that he was violent and directed his violence towards prostitutes who were easy targets because they were out and about at all hours on the already quite dangerous streets of the East End and they were willingly taking their clients to dark secluded places in the anticipation of sex acts which never took place because of the Ripper did not um, assault his victims in that manner. It was all about the kill and the gratification from the mutilations. 
Interesting. Yeah. Going back to your great-great-grandfather for a moment, it must be fun wondering about what role he played in the investigation and what his thoughts were on the possible identity of the killer. What we know are reflections from fellow officers such as Walter Jew, who wrote a memoir, who really talk about the stress, you know, that the investigation placed on them and the fact that there was a public outcry every time another murder took place and, you know, real accusations against the police as to why they weren't keeping people safe, you know, how could it happen again? But if you look at the tools that the police had available to them, which were extremely limited, and the fact that they had a very dangerous serial killer on the loose, um, who was extremely lucky in his timings, because as I've mentioned, I don't believe he was highly intelligent and cunning. I believe that unfortunately, he did have a lot of luck on his side. Um, I do speculate about what I call the kind of living nightmare that the police were propelled into. And we know as a fact that both the Metropolitan and the City of London police forces put their best men on the case. And the men were working all hours to try to solve it. They were taking money from their own pockets to give to women on the streets to get them into lodgings for the night. So I do often reflect on what it must have been like for him. Um, He had a wife and towards the end of that time period, actually five children. And the officers themselves must have feared uh, being attacked on the beat, not just by the ordinary criminals, which did happen, but if the Ripper had found any police officer or a member of the vigilance committees, you know, getting in his way, presumably uh, that could have been a, a fatal encounter as well. So I do think of it as being an extremely pressurized time and something that was viewed as a police failure and what Walter Jew called an honorable failure because of the effort that was put in and the genuine status of the case that even Queen Victoria was inquiring after the progress of. Yeah, wow. huh? So how has your book been received by readers, fans of the case? What have you heard back so far? It's had an amazing response. I've had some great publicity and excellent reviews. I've had people saying, definitely one of the best Ripper books. And people love my personal connection to the case. And I've had readers say that they can feel that connection all the way through. And in fact, my ancestor was genuinely my inspiration. And my passion for the case was kind of reinvigorated, you know, throughout the whole of the writing period. And so I'm just delighted if that comes across to the readers. And I wrote it in tribute to Harry and his brother officers. 
Oh, that, that's really nice. Yeah. So your book is available in the UK now in all versions, and you can purchase it in, in North America currently as an ebook. I know it's on Amazon Kindle. Uh, and it's also available for pre-order on February 6th, 2024 in paperback for the US and Canada. Thank you very much. And, and I hope everybody enjoys reading it. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Eric. Again, I have been speaking to Sarah Bax Horton. She is the author of One-Armed Jack, Uncovering Jack the Ripper. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.